You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To the one who writes Jesus is the answer on the youth room poster or on the bathroom stall, I tend to reply, Jesus is the question. And of course, true to biblical phrase building, Jesus is not mere question, but question of questions demanding from the thinking faithful, careful inquiry into history, theology, literary craft, metaphysics, ethics, aesthetics, and all sorts of good things. To try to take all that on in fewer than 200 pages would take a great fool. So it's a good thing that Christian Humanist Profiles has Trip Fuller on hand to play that fool. <coughs> Trip's new book, Jesus, Lord, Liar, Lunatic, or Just Freaking Awesome, that is the real title despite what the front cover tells you, from Fortress Press, glides between questions and invites its readers in a style true to Trip's project to brew their own answers from the manifold of Jesus' questions. Trip, thank you for coming on Christian, Prof- Christian Humanist Profiles. Oh, I, I, I'm glad to be here. I, I feel like I finally arrived. Uh, <laughs> there's just been, uh, uh, you know, normally if, if we talk, it's always about, about something else. And this time, I don't have to use, uh, like, high-quality Netflix series to just say what I wanted to say. Well, there you go. You know, you know, Trip. I, I would always have uh, accepted an invitation to come on TNT if you had just invited. Oh no, we did. We recorded it, and then I don't <laughs> even know where it went. <laughs> yeah, and I just wanted you to tell that story for our listeners so they'll believe me. So, <laughs> no, I, it 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 was funny because it went like two and a half hours. Um, so at some point we discussed Plato, and you were like, "Well, I didn't know you liked Plato," and I was like, "Well, we should talk about it." And then it kept going, mm-hmm. and. Uh, but we'll have to do it again. We should do. We should do that. Well, Trip, you and I are people who read Jesus books all the time, uh, and we write about Jesus books and we think about Jesus books, and we know how many Jesus books are out there. So I'm going to lead with the obvious. What does your book offer to the reading world that other Jesus books aren't offering with as much zest? Well, um, you know, I, my mom's pretty confident that uh, my contribution is very unique and particular and is is full of zest no one else has. But um, one of the things I wanted to do in the book is uh, is is more of the style uh, when it goes to introducing it in this kind of like snarky, playful tone, but also – uh, the content, like, I did not want to dumb anything down or water it down. I wanted to try to write uh, where some of the best questions, ideas, concepts, and things from the Academy um, are put right on Front Street for the uh, the reader to think about and wrestle with. Because uh, vocationally, um, equipping the, the church and it, its members to think more critically and faithfully – uh, it's is something I'm committed to, um, so that's I mean that's the goal of the Jesus book. In the other part is, um, it it also was one of the most devotional practices I've ever done. It was like getting to read, think through, write, rewrite, come up with different stories to tell than the ones that you originally sent the publisher, and all kinds of things. Just had me reflecting more and more on just how much joy there is in uh, the gospel, and I wanted to communicate that so that uh, I think a lot of people that are seen as more progressive uh, have a hard time celebrating uh, Jesus, not crossing their fingers when they talk about Christ, um, and and that kind of thing. And I wanted to 
to do that joyfully and then not avoid questions or topics that could make uh, you know some some Christians uncomfortable. Very good, very good. Well, early on in this book, you call for Christology to, quote, keep it weird, close quote, and more specifically to avoid making the Christian faith a way to become indistinguishable from Christ. Now, when I read these phrases, I know that you are responding to large tendencies in 21st century Christianity. Help our listeners for a moment here see those tendencies. Yeah, well, and I think they're kind of obvious ones, like, once you think about it, right? So, like, the idea of keeping it weird is is twofold. One is um, there is a tendency among more progressive Christians to basically deflate all their claims about Jesus the moment they walk into the room with their uh, secular humanist friend, their Jewish friend, uh, their Buddhist friend, their Muslim friend, that uh, everything that's kind of particular and central to the Christian tradition is chucked to be um, uh, more open and inclusive and non-threatening and uh, judgmental sounding and that kind of thing. And uh, I, I've I've had enough experiences at interfaith gatherings to know that um, that's actually pretty annoying to people of other faith or no faith, uh, that, that we just chuck our stuff. So I think keeping it weird is partially like, come on, uh, we're Christians, so it's, it's not going to surprise your Jewish friends if you t- call Jesus the Christ. Right. Mm. That's not that's that's not going to be crazy, but it is weird because we are identifying a homeless dead Jew from the first century on a mediocre planet in a mediocre solar system in a rather normal galaxy um, that spent almost ninety nine point nine 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 percent of cosmic history getting to the point that any of us would ever use symbol sign language in community knowing we're going to die to ever talk let alone talk about god or let alone respond to god in a way that got that the full faithfulness of a homeless dead jew could be called the image of the invisible god like it's just crazy talk and it's weird and it's freaking awesome right like to me the uh the craziness of our affirmation about jesus is really, really cool. And so early in the book, I joke about, uh, I, I tell the whole uh, interaction between Pliny and Trajan, where uh, it's the earliest reference outside of a Christian one about the early church. And, you know, if, if you read it, basically you find out that even after, uh, you know, the Roman aristocracy here tortures a few uh, female slaves uh, who were deaconesses, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, they aren't these crazy people eating humans. It's just the Eucharist. They just call it weird stuff. They sing songs to a dude we crucified as if he's God, and then they promise to be ethical, have integrity, help the poor, and do good. Um, it's kind of weird, right? Like, they get overheard, like you overhear this conversation, and they're struck by just how funny, weird-sounding our affirmations are, and by the kind of character of discipleship, a community, the uh, breaking down of certain barriers, be it putting female slaves in charge of their master, you know, authority-wise, as making them deaconesses. Mm-hmm. So, like, the weirdness to me is um, a, a, a real important part. And in Christendom, or as the church became culture-dominant, it's like we only hung out with people that represented three or four percent of the first and second century, uh, and then it just became normative, right? Like mm-hmm. when I grew up in the South, uh, religious diversity was the type of Baptist you were, like <laughs> not 
not the five different religions on my street um, that I have now in Los Angeles or uh, if you just get it on the Internet um, or the diversity throughout church history. Uh, so to me, there is – we are being disingenuous if our introduction to Christianity um, assumes uh, culture dominance because that's not where it emerged uh, and if it assumes – a uh, also a locked in um, a locked in stable kind of core of response, which I think is the other half of the question, right? Like even the subtitle is a search engine optimi- optimized uh, uh, playoff. C.S. Lewis, the whole like Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Uh, and under underneath it, the assumption is that Jesus said he was God, um, and that's just clear as day. And now he either is crazy, lying, or, or it's true. And, I, I, you know, N.T. Wright uh, spends thousands of pages saying that he thinks Jesus might have thought he was God. And that's the part all of his conservative biblical scholar friends aren't too sure about. So I, it, it's just not immediately obvious. So my point there is just uh, why have our encounter with other people to get them on board with our vocabulary, some objective word, some title, when Jesus' own encounter with people wasn't about learning the right vocabulary. Hell, like uh, uh, Peter calls Jesus the Christ, Son of the living God, and then thinks the definition of Christ means Jesus shouldn't go to Jerusalem and die on a cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right. And in fact, the text uses the Greek verb that you use when you're casting out a demon. Jesus rebukes Jesus for saying crazy stuff. Yes. Dude, see that a preach? Thank you. (laughs) It has. (laughs) And so I'm just like, to me, what I want to do at the front of the book is to go like, it's like if you're going to be on Team Jesus, realize we're talking about a homeless dead Jew who uh, it's just crazy to identify as the self-revelation of God, but we're doing it. And we're not doing it for objective reasons, like you're going to demonstrate it all historically, philosophically, blah, blah, blah. Um, Like we can do all those things, but faith is not uh, the end of a math equation. Uh, It's much more like falling in love. It's subjective. That's why the Kierkegaard part at the beginning is a real important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I don't think Jesus walked around uh, teaching everyone analytical philosophy uh, and and how to how to parse um, uh, parse himself to to have uh, line up the evidence and logic and demand a verdict about the label to put on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so but, uh, the first chapter and where that comes from is going like, look, Christians, like we oh, it is crazy, and you know why it's crazy because we believe that God. Uh, came to know us completely and love us completely and reveal that in a homeless dead Jew. That's nuts. It's also freaking awesome. Mm-hmm. And as a minister, as a Christian, who's got to hear tons of people's different stories from across the uh, Christian uh, spectrum, theologically, ethically, race, and all those different things, it's one of the things that holds so many Christians in common is that their experience of God is mediated by Jesus and when we describe that experience, we use words like grace, salvation, mm-hmm. healing. And they mean different things in different contexts. But part of what it means to be Christian is being weird enough to frame the big human questions uh, in uh, in a story about a homeless dead Jew. Mm-hmm. 
And a homeless dead Jew who gets called alternately son of God and son of man. And I really appreciated yeah. this part of your book because this is something that I emphasize when I teach in church context that you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Uh, so talk to our listeners for a moment about the phrase son of God and son of man and why people tend to invert their first century connotations. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's uh, I think it's important to get like when you hear son of man, um, I, I at least I did growing up. I would not have thought this is probably the highest affirmation of Jesus in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, that when Jesus is identified as the Son of Man or speaks assuming himself as the Son of Man, that Christologically, like that's the highest statement there is. Uh, because the Son of Man is a, uh, a character symbol of apocalyptic Judaism um, about uh, God's uh, intentions uh, for humanity prior to the world, God's divine intentions, plans, purpose, call, future of it all. And that this revealing of the Son of Man is is this like giant cosmic cataclysmic event that changes all of history. Mm-hmm. Son of God is a rather normal phrase for human beings, especially the people of God of Israel. Um, and it you know, and the same thing happens right like with the term like Messiah, anointed one. Mm-hmm. With you, if you, you know, I the I was talking with Walter Brueggemann the other day. Uh, we're getting to teach a class together this summer at the Hatchery where I'm working, and uh, which, like, I don't know what I'm contributing to it, but uh, <laughs> other than my presence and uh, uh, jokes, uh, but <laughs> but he, we were talking about one of the one of the week or one of the sessions, and he says, yeah, yeah well, it's just real important. We have to go through like the five different people just in this one book of the Bible who are anointed ones, because nothing's nothing makes the New Testament more uh, confusing than when people think that there's there that that biblical Jews believe there's only one Christ, you know, Christ the Messiah, anointed one, all the same word. There, uh, uh, multiple people are it, mm-hmm. in in and the among them, thing, and among them Cyrus the Great, yes, <laughs> a Persian. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, to me, like, are, do you step on toes when you tell people that kind of stuff in certain religious settings? Yes. Who? Why are you stepping on the toes? So that they can more responsibly and faithfully engage the Christian tradition. That's not edgy or progressive, or at least it shouldn't be, for mm-hmm. us to to uh, intelligently invest in our tradition. Now, this is why I love the Christian Humanist Podcast, because, like, y'all care about even the people that I can't even figure out how I would get around as tolerating very long, like in the <laughs> Middle Ages, all this kind of stuff. This is why it's really important for everyone to listen uh, listen to your podcast, because then you can find out, like, how in the world is someone going to be uh, so worked up by a bunch of 14th century debates? Mm-hmm. Um, and then w- that's what you're there for. Yeah, <laughs> we are those people. <laughs> I know. And then when you hear it, you're like, "Oh, junk!" If I had had the right teacher at the right time, I would be so into that. Like, I can completely get it. This is awesome. And you see the passion. And so, one of my goals throughout is to kind of uh, lovingly, in the most in inviting way, articulate these different ideas, be it history, biblical engagement, uh, different theologians, or questions, so that. Uh, that kind of attractiveness that you get when you hear um, 
uh, when you hear y'all discussing like a, a T.S. Eliot poet, obviously around when you discuss Star Wars or um, that kind of thing, <laughs> or or you're going to go back and and discuss uh, Anselm. I tried, I tried Anselm, um, or or Abelard's love poetry or whatever. Like the energy and excitement of someone who's loved the text long enough that even if you don't get it or couldn't spend your life doing it, you go, yeah, but there's something way more in it than I thought. And my goal in the book is to uh, do that for the different parts of the tradition that have just helped me fall in love in G- with Jesus in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. Now, Tripp, uh, you are wrapping up your dissertation for a Ph.D. in theology, yes? Yeah, uh, it's a joint program, so it's philosophy of religion and theology. But... Okay, very good. Well, I've been away from seminary for 13 years now, so I'll admit that I'm not up to the latest scholarship the way that you are. So tell me about this Egyptian pharaoh that destroyed Solomon's temple. Well, I was hoping you could clarify that for me. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I, I you know, I the the most recent uh, source that I've encountered that advanced that theory was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I <laughs> well, uh, I mean, Harrison Ford is uh, I guess could be my my second attestation uh, <laughs> to this theory, but <laughs> like so I. I'm reading the book, and I noticed this, and it's in parentheses, like as a explanatory comic, because I mentioned the Second Temple period. Uh huh. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, that's not good. That's not right. Is that right? There's no way that's right. Uh, the the date's correct. Um, so I'm sitting there going, what? How did this happen? So. And I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. I well, just no, no, no. The date wasn't right because it said decades after it was built. It was 400 years later. Oh, it did say that. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll admit, Trip, and I'm going to pay you a compliment here. I got to that page. I put my bookmark in the book, and I went to my personal library to make sure I hadn't misremembered it all these years. Oh, that. Because <laughs> I thought, okay, if Trip says this, I... <laughs> no, dude, I saw it, and I went. I read my own self and said. <laughs> That's not right. And uh, so I, I email the publisher, and I'm like, did someone uh, add clarifying comments? And you know, maybe I just didn't look at it and approved it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I do know I was shocked to discover Pharaoh's hand in destroying Solomon's temple. I'm sure Pharaoh and Solomon uh, would both be shocked. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's his father-in-law for pity's sake. So basically what that means is uh, that everyone should buy 100 copies of the book so they can go ahead and print the next version. Uh, there of the you go. I mean, that's a, what better reason could we have than to uh, get, you know, Henry Jones out of this book? Well, Tripp, yeah. on, on, on a more rigorous note, you do warn your readers not to say less than historical Jesus scholars, even when we say more than they do. Now, I want to pose a question to you. Is there a place in your schema for saying just as much as they do but in a different direction. Or if you like, to what extent do you see disagreeing with particular historians as valid when one does Christology? Um, I think you have to disagree with historians when doing Christology if you realize what a historian is supposed to be doing and what a theologian is supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't remember if this stayed in the book, but one example that I... I, I've used, and I've used this in my ongoing arguments with my uh, radical theology friends. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, it, you know, when you read the Gospel of Mark crucifixion, uh, and Jesus, you know, you know, whether or not he's quoting the psalm, 
or Matthew or Luke's additional references to the psalm as a giant cover-up of Jesus' existential atheism as he dies, saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? Point being, like, the, the reason it's a gospel story is not because Jesus existentially died an atheist feeling abandoned or something. The reason it's a gospel um, is because uh, he, he was wrong, and the one that's right uh, is the one that says this is truly the Son of God. Like, it's in the gospel not because of something that is inherent to Jesus' own subjectivity, the historical uh, the historical account we can get or reconstruct. Um, Christology is, a, is the critical and faithful reflection on uh, the person of Jesus and the presence of Christ in the church. Like, Christology, it's inappropriate— um, to do Christology simply about the historical Jesus, because the early church did not draw weird distinctions between Jesus of history and Christ of faith. In fact, Paul mocks it. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, some of y'all knew Jesus historically, but none of us know him that way anymore. And there's a reason. Like, the Christian community was the body of Christ. Like, they didn't mean it metaphorically. It took really bad Aristotelian metaphysics to, to ruin the uh, literalism of that one. Like, they were in Christ. They, the presence of the risen Christ is what bound the community. When you read about the early church fathers prior to any canon and things, central to it were the practices of the body of Christ. Baptism, uh, 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 catechesis, uh, the Eucharist. These type of things are the way they practiced and embodied being the body of Christ, and they understood their present experience of God to be mediated by Christ. And so uh, for me, Christology is about the uh, experience of, of the church's um, uh, life in with Christ. And historians are very, very important and helpful. I don't think we should um, dismiss them. I think uh, it's easy to dismiss some of their conclusions if they close off uh, the horizon of meaning, if that makes sense. So if a historian says something like, um, and this is true for atheist ones. Uh, historically, the early church all believed God raised Jesus from the dead. That's impossible. So they must have been delusional. Like, the first statement is a historical statement. That, yeah. Okay, the next one is a metaphysical statement. The third one is a theological statement. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think differentiating history and the sciences – uh, from philosophy and metaphysics and from uh, theology, differentiating the three avenues of inquiry helps us realize uh, just what an asset historical uh, scholarship around Jesus can be. Uh, we can understand, like, for example, the difference between Son of God, Son of Man, and the Christ. We can uh, understand more deeply the political and historical context. We can understand the diversity of Judaism in the first century. We can understand that um, the Judaism of the first century was not Luther's reading of Paul, where <laughs> Judaism is obsessed with the law. Like, there's tons of amazing stuff, mm -hmm. but I don't think, like, our answer Christ Christologically is d determined by whether or not we like Marcus Borg or N.T. Wrightmore. Um, mm -hmm. I think they can simultaneously contribute to something, and but not determine it. And, like, funny, like, in this book, like, I had— I had theologians, uh, different ones that are friends of mine, been on the podcast, respond. I had one tell me, "Oh, trip this, you know, 
I had no idea that you were such a Marcus Borg fan and uh, and used it and developed this Christology. Another said, "Why well, I d- didn't know you like James Dunn so much. Uh, another's like, this is way more N.T. Wright than I thought. And I was like, oh, I should have been more clear. So I'm glad you asked the question because um, I, I feel like I, I, I was hoping not to write a book where it's where it goes everything else that's about to be said is more true and probably the best interpretation because trip just finally told us who the historical jesus is trip another bit of bible lore that i appreciated largely because i also try to emphasize this when i teach the gospels is that forgiveness of sins in the gospels especially the synoptics has something to do with the temple and something to do with expectations of the coming king what do Christians stand to gain when we keep forgiveness connected to these institutions in that first century? Well, um, I, I guess like the main thing to get is uh, a an actual referent for the words we supposedly think are important, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, one of the things you see, like sins, like uh, when we talk about forgiveness of sins, that has turned mostly into um, some guilt slash shame based system of uh not having sex or drinking and not maybe not using the right words or whatever like there's this weird perversion that happens the most like when uh sins turn into some weird management system around um individual acts and i think when you set uh, what has, for many, the doctrine of, of sin become the, one of the more burdensome, the one of the more deadly, uh, one of the more like life-destroying doctrines in its historical context, then um, the, that I think it becomes actually one of the more attractive and powerful uh, uh, doctrines. So we, the, uh, a, a good example is um, like there, the forgiveness of sin in the temple system uh, when the temple became occupied by Rome's uh, henchmen, the you know, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders who compromised uh, their religious commitment in order to be on the take from their uh, you know puppet state type status with Rome, uh, the the access to the temple and all those things became part of the the theopolitical um, discussion. And one of the biggest threats to it are people like John the Baptist who say, hey, 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 I know y'all used to get baptized so that you could get purified uh, ritually so that you could go to the temple and be forgiven of your sin. Uh, the temple sucks. In fact, God hates it even more than you do. Uh, also, Herod uh, is, uh, is a horny bastard. Um, <laughs> uh, Rome uh, can, can just uh, lick my uh, dirty feet. And also infected honey on him. Like, yeah, he's just like he's throwing shade at the temple, at Rome, at Herod, and um, and what he does. The prophetic part is that he says, "Don't go into the center of power in the middle of Jerusalem, where you have uh, the uh, in-house legion of Pilate and Herod's." Uh, 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 Herod's court in the temple and its economic theopolitical mediation system. Don't go there to get right with God. Actually, leave the city and go as far away from that system of power as possible. Come to the river that you crossed when you came into this land as outcast slaves escaping. Go into that river 
and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Like John the Baptist is cutting out that whole cultural, religious, political, ugly uh, cesspool of perverted power uh, by connecting forgiveness of sins to baptism in a Jordan, not through the temple system. And the, the other part of it is, is that John's the Baptist's whole mission is caught up in this apocalyptic fever that's saying, like, look, history does not uh, end uh, when you're adding up the dots here with the one who made it good and just and loving. And yet, as the people of God, we say that there's one good God who made a good world. In fact, it's very good when we live in community well with ourselves, God, others, in the world. Like, this is what God's up to. And yet, history is full of, of crosses. It's full of injustice. It's full of suffering and pain. And, and uh, prophets try to talk, they get killed. You get the commandments, they get ignored. Uh, you you uh, start to respond faithfully, then you get in power and it perverts you. Like, what's going to have to happen for this junk to finally have a world where God's goodness it is revealed in God's world. And of the rise of apocalyptic Judaism, or eschatological hope, is the recognition that uh, we refuse to give up on God's goodness, and so we demand God to set things to right. Like mm -hmm. the apocalyptic expectations are looking at the problem of evil in the face and saying, you do not have the last word, God is good. And so the expectation for the coming king, the reign of God, uh, and, you know, I do the joke about dropping the G of, out of the kingdom, but like that whole vision is saying, here's what God is going to do, because God will keep God's promises to be the good God of a good world who is sovereign and loving and holy and just. And that expectation uh, is connected to that prophetic critique of the temple and its religious political system. Forgiveness of sins comes outside the city, outside the power structures of religion, culture, and the system. The coming king is one who is contra, opposite, Herod, Pilate, Caesar, and company. Um, the interpretation of Torah comes from the homeless, untrained rabbi who sets people straight as an adolescent, not from uh, the trained, wise ones rocking sweet beards. Like, uh when we realize that the coming king is not like our escape out, but God coming to be the one God promised to be, mm -hmm. that God's character's up for grabs, and that even the temple system has been perverted, then it makes sense for us to talk about forgiveness of sins in, in and shape it by the way it functions in Jesus's ministry. He goes to John. He has the experience. But even then— he doesn't stay on the outside and say, come out here and get right with God. Josephus even says he didn't baptize people till their skin was sagging from fasting. Like you had to know you were a sack of it before John was going to baptize you because he was, he was just angry, hardcore, and junk. Jesus, on the <laughs> other hand, he goes into the cities but then goes into the margins. And he doesn't go, hey, friends, uh, hi, lepers, prostitutes. Uh, centurions, Zacchaeus, y'all suck ass. Now, what are you going to do about it? He goes in, and he just is like dropping forgiveness bombs all over the place. Friends, break a house roof, bring someone down, forgive the sins. Uh, why? Oh, his friend's faith. Um, heal someone. Oh, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Religious readers, what? You're allowed to do that? All right, never mind. 
pick up your mat and walk. Like all these signs are Jesus going, sin is the barrier between the loving and good God and God's creation. God is coming to set things to right to demonstrate in history, in this world, to the outcasts and the cross-forsaken people that God is coming, present, loving, and active. And that means that this forgiveness system, this religious partitioning of people away from the divine presence and powers involved in getting access, it just needs to get trashed. Jesus comes in and he goes, now is the time. And All right. You, so, like, to me, that makes forgiveness of sins this call to be a part of this radical mission, uh, this beautiful story. It gives us the confidence to walk at someone and not convince them before telling them the gospel that they're horrible. Like, what a horrible beginning of a sermon. How many horrible sermons begin by convincing someone they're a sinner? What if instead you get to show up and say, you have so much more in you than you know? Like, like that completely different beginning, and I think that's how Jesus even modifies John the Baptist. Too many sin, sin sermons still preach like John, where you have to have sagging skin, where you have to really feel like crap, and Jesus goes, oh, no, no, the gospel is so freaking awesome, just taste it, and then who you used to be you'll identify as a sinner, or your old self, or your old way of being. But the new is just so beautiful, you don't have to convince someone they suck first. That whole... Sin management, power structure, developing around access to God is perverted. Well, I want to turn back to biblical scholarship here for a moment. Uh, you write that the text of Mark doesn't let any character call Jesus son of God until the crucifixion, and that Jesus dies in Mark directly after Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. Fair enough. I don't dispute that. What I, I guess my concern is that you seem to be reading Mark as if it were separate from the confessions developing at the time, the confessing communities, rather than as a text likely read alongside Christ hymns and Eucharistic liturgies. Uh, convince me that I'm wrong here, Tripp, because it seems like you are putting the Bible on an island apart from that first century context. Oh, look, okay. Yeah, this I think would be helpful. Here, so here's my goal. And like, if, if you haven't read the book... Um, I introduced that whole section by saying um, most Christians are Tatianites, where yeah. <laughs> uh, um, the individual Gospels um, don't get to have their own voice. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, even though obviously we don't really know who wrote them or whatnot. Uh, but those texts, whether they come from individual authors or communities or whatever, represent a diversity of different affirmations about uh, Christ. They – they represent different theological narrations of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Um, and if you just compare and contrast the four Gospels and even Paul's Christology, what we normally think of as settled questions as Christians aren't settled. When did Jesus become divine? Uh, Paul, um, most Pauline scholars are like, at the resurrection. Uh, Mark, uh, baptism maybe. Matthew, Luke, conception. John, what do you mean became? In the beginning. And um, now that doesn't mean any of them are – like the canon is not the place I think we settle, sing, get, produce singular answers to really good questions. The diversity of answers in canon are a way that the church protected a diversity of answers to the question, who do you say I am? Now it's not like we, – we obviously know they excluded certain answers. 
Gnostic ones, anti-Semitic ones. Like, it's rather brilliant, I think. But what I was wanting to do is to say, like, Tatian, this heretic in the early church, created a harmony gospel where everything lined up. Oh, Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning in the Gospel of John and at the end in the other three. Jesus must have did it twice. And that's how he fixes things like this. Oh, the Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, not different articulations of a similar sermon or a sayings document. It was two different sermons, right. um, so we got to fit them both in there. One the was same healing story happened slightly differently. <laughs> you know, so when in the rejection of harmonizing the surface of something, the objective accounts, and saying no, 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 what is canon are the diversity of affirmations of Jesus as the Christ. I'm in that section wanting to argue that you and I have friends who, if you said whose voice in the New Testament gets to ours, it's Mark's. That's about all they can manage right now. Like, they can go, I get Jesus dying, not sure what's going on. And I hope that the women who encountered someone we know not exactly who but ran away scared and didn't tell anyone, like, I can go right around there, and I want to have that voice sit in church next to someone who does not cross, cross fingers during Christ hymns. Mm-hmm. And I want them to feel per- perfectly at home in the Eucharist. Because Mark is in the New Testament. Now, you've read the book. I have not, I don't, Mark's not my Christology. <laughs> I have a lot higher one. Mm-hmm. I just think that one of the beautiful things, if as a biblical Christian, is that there's a diversity of um, uh, Christologies in the New Testament. Now, if I was writing that same point for an academic audience, it would basically be at a giant critique of people like Joel Green, who are like, you want to know how to read the Bible? Through the early church fathers. Like, he thinks successful reading of the New Testament, um, and people like him. I I just got done reading one of his books, and it made me just stab my face. Um, <laughs> is is to read the book, read the New Testament, and think that the proper understanding of Romans chapter 1's Christology is the Trinity. And that Mark is somehow connected to that. Like, to me, that is as exegetically violent as an anti-Semitic reading. You're not letting the text have its own integrity, its own voice. You're telling them to read you correctly is to read you against yourself and end in a decision that was made at Nicaea. Uh, That is just uh, violent. It's violent exegesis. And it drives me nuts. And the other thing it does is it makes people believe that are in the pews that somehow our doctrines we developed in long conversations over time are conclusions rather than testimonies about the living and life-giving God present in Christ and in our church. So the the negative part about it isn't, oh, Tripp doesn't like Nicaea or something. No, it it actually just misunderstands what the Bible is and what our creeds are and what we're doing when we do theology. And uh, it it's like uh, – uh, I feel like it's like taking a cool bunny and then you cut it open. And then you think you've learned what the bunny is by killing it and dissecting it as opposed to going, you know what the bunny is? Check this out. Look, it's like hopping in junk. Oh, it's eating a carrot. It's getting this bunniness on. The bunniness is the living bunny doing bunny-like things. Not a cut-up bunny dissecting the parts and explaining how it all works together for the perfect archetype of a bunny uh, somewhere in 312 or something. 
Well, let me push back just a little bit on that because uh, to take our, our bunny example again, I'm not going to cut this one open, uh, but if you were to take a bunny out of its warren and to isolate it, uh, put it in a cage away from all other bunnies and say we can gain the sum of bunny knowledge by studying it here in isolation away from those things strikes me as a betrayal of ecological thinking which would say the bunny is at its truest bunnyhood uh, when it is in fact in its well I mean in the context in which you actually find it acting like a bunny I mean is not the separation of exegesis from worship a sort of act of isolation, perhaps not as violent as dissecting the poor critter, uh, but at the very least isolating it where it wants to be around its fellow bunnies. I, I mean, I in my mind the the uh, the the earth, the Bible the Bible's not the word of God. Jesus is, and the scriptures are inviting, provoking insisting about us responding from the depths of our being to a homeless Jew. The, what that looks like is hugely diverse. Um, the proper ecosystem of a text is the diversity and experiences and life of the Christian community. I promise that uh, I read Joel B. Green's book on um, the theological interpretation of the Bible mm -hmm. in a classroom, and the only person that liked it is the one straight white guy. <laughs> uh, uh, the three people from non-American places, two that grew up in base communities in Latin America and theologically might agree with them, thought it was kind of offensive. Uh, the the uh, feminists clearly did. Uh, African-American church thought it was funny um, that the, the appropriate reading for white people about it is uh, th this type of lens. Like, like I to me, in what they were responding to wasn't whether or not they liked the theological part. It's just that the life a, the a theological life comes out of the actual lived experience of the body of Christ. And um, when we say that the correct reading of the Gospel of Mark is the Trinity, then you are telling everyone that fought to keep the text around, uh, died not turning it over, read it, encountered the resurrected Christ for a couple hundred years, that they did it, so that they could never understand what the text was about or was there for. So, like, I just want to differentiate the surface linguistic reference we use for theology that's, and, and stuff uh, from the uh, vibrations of the Spirit, our subjective existence of faith, and then say our language for faith. Uh, it, it originates— as Christians, we're baptized into Christ from the actual encounter with Christ in our body. And this is, shouldn't be weird for Protestants, I don't think. This is, I mean, like, uh, in the 1520 um, uh, essays from Luther, this is his big push. Um, it's that the language of faith has been misunderstood. Like, what is the Protestant insight? It's the for me. And I think we miss that when our lens for encountering uh, our liturgical language, our scriptures and stuff, becomes uh, telling a bunch of people who, one, are Trinitarian heretics because they don't understand it, don't know what it means, that the proper reading of a text they're encountering that speaks life to them week after week is a theological conclusion most of them don't know, and I know most of their ministers don't understand it because I count off points when they try to explain the Trinity on their intro to theology test. Like, the, the, does that make sense? Like, I, it's not a... 
um, uh, I, I want to for us to benefit by hearing um, the different testimonies to the risen Christ that are in the New Testament. And it's for the very purpose of us in a church that is becoming uh, shifting away from being dominated by the West to the global South, that we expect to hear the body of Christ speaking the gospel, narrating it in different words. Um, the, the whole, you know, the conclusion of that chapter uh, it, it deals with the story of the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman, depending on the gospel. And and I use that to argue for a um, that the diversity of the New Testament is actually calling us as the church to give permission to have people tell the gospel story um, uh, in their own context and things mm-hmm. like. If you are if you are in Africa and the best way of articulating the uh, story of Jesus is talking about him on safari for the kingdom of God, then yes, do it. Like, the, and we need to learn to hear that and not tell them uh, that uh, and our congregants like the correct answer for your experience of God, your engagement with the scriptures and the tradition is uh, this horizon uh, that was established. Uh, in the fourth century. All right. Well, let me put let me put one more question to you, and then I do want to move on. Uh, you seem to be a, you seem to be positing, and I agree with you in this that a plurality of readings is ultimately what the Bible invites. I am down with that. That's what I teach. You know, that's that's even how I preach most of the time. What I hear you saying though, with the next breath, is Joel Green, who I haven't read, so I mean, I'll I'll trust your reading of him. Well, you can pick it. Just, just pick it. I, I only said his name because I just read it. And, uh-huh. But, but you know what I mean. It could be anyone that says that the appropriate horizon for interpreting text is a theological conclusion that the church worked towards for three hundred years. Right. My question is, why can't that be one helpful reading among other helpful readings? Oh, I, I think it can be one among others. I'm just like. The Gospel of Mark in that thing represents to me a whole bunch of human beings, probably a third of the church I worked at for seven years, who have no idea what to do with um, three-fourths of the church's historic affirmations. Mm-hmm. And yet, they engage the scriptures, they take their faith very seriously, they come week after week, they're giving money, they're serving their community, they're wrestling with their own vocation in light of the radical call of Christ, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and part of what I realized in like sitting long enough with most of uh, even my the conservative members of my congregation, they would say junk like, "Oh, well, you know, the Trinity, blah blah blah," and then they would describe it in the most modalistic way possible, or it would be a subordinationist account, or like the idea that uh, it's the only readings what I'm protesting. Okay, I, well, with that, I agree with you. Like I, I said, I mean, there I, I think you overshoot that. Who are Christian, Christian uh-huh. atheists that still, for some reason, are called to engage the text, participate in community, take the Eucharist, should have space to be there in the same way that someone that is obnoxious, like you or I, who probably uh, <laughs> wants to clarify everyone the proper reading of the Trinity um, and has specific opinions about the relationship between the economic and imminent Trinity, like I'm against Runner's Rule. Um, and I think that is the historic position, and I side with the Cappadocians uh, on certain points, 
uh, and if you read Gregory of Nyssa correctly, the mm-hmm. uh, Rahner's rule is in a misappropriation of uh, the mutual indwelling of the three persons in its salvation history in reference to uh, God in God's own self. Like, I would love to have that argument, and it won't even be comprehensible to most people in the congregation, and you and I would enjoy it. And we would enjoy it. And when we have that conversation, what are we talking about? The God we relate to devotionally with our brain. When we argue about it, I don't hear me and you arguing as, oh, we're going to stab each other. Oh, oh, this is important. we got to go down. It's, look, we are so in love with a God who has revealed God's self in, as the triune one that we're going to get nitpicky about this. And it is a dance of friendship. Like, that's exciting. And But if that's not where people are, if that's not what they have their interest in or whatnot, they still have a relationship with God and Christ, and I want them to have uh, – I want to argue that the, the diversity of the Bible uh, it, uh, advocates for a, um, a making space and protecting space for diversity in our congregations. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and with, that, with that, I agree. With that, I agree. Like I said, my concern is not that you advocate diversity – you won't find, uh, other than when you look in the mirror, a larger advocate for diversity in theology than you'll find with me. What I fear is that sometimes when you argue for it, you overshoot and you actually cut off some of the folks that you just flew flew past. Does that make any sense? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, uh, the, uh, I, 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 I get it. I don't, I don't. In, let's see it this way. I don't think there's many Christians that actually have any clue what uh, the rule of faith means um, uh, enough to, like, that when, if you're critiquing it, you're critiquing their actual lived Christian experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know a lot of people who feel like they can't te- give testimony to their faith and, uh, and experience of the risen Christ because uh, Mark doesn't get to be Mark in the congregation. So the agnostic who's in love with Jesus has experiences they're uncomfortable putting words on, but is trying to faithfully follow Jesus, whose husband is a very faithful member of the church uh, and member of the choir, doesn't get to share their faith experience because Mark doesn't. That's the main thrust. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, I want to talk about Anselm. But before we get to the content of Anselm's theology, I want you to pick up your book, and I want you to read the passage on page 93 about the cruise ship filled with people who read medieval theology. Go ahead and read it. Oh, let's see here. Um, Let's see. Despite his notoriety, Anselm is a contentious figure among nerds, who have strong opinions about medieval theologians. I'm sure all the people emotionally invested in assessing medieval theology could fit in one small cruise ship, yet Anselm's view of the atonement, often labeled the satisfaction theory, continues to provoke important discussions concerning power and privilege in theology. Let's start by looking exactly what he said. <laughs> so listeners, I, I want you to hear this. Uh, Trip Fuller just said there is going to be a uh, Christian humanist podcast cruise, and he's buying uh, now, of course, you know that I'd be on that cruise, but to talk about Anselm's theology for a second, your, your account of Anselm's theology is fair and even-handed, and I commend you for that, but here's my question. What differentiates Anselm's weird Christology 
from the weird Christology you talked about back at the beginning of the book. Isn't this plenty weird? Dude, okay, so um, let me tell you the two audiences I was writing that for. uh, Well, one, Anselm is my favorite medieval philosopher. Uh, I wrote a whole comprehensive exam on Anselm uh, as a process person uh, who loves Charles Hartshorn. Charles Hartshorn loved Anselm and uh, and has been one of the important uh, defenders of the ontological argument. Um, it's my favorite argument for the existence of God, even though I not I don't lose much sleep on those things. Yeah, nor do um, I. <laughs> I. I uh, so my my audience is twofold. One, most of my progressive friends hate Anselm because of one article written with sociological data and horrible understanding of Anselm about his atonement theory uh, being uh, correlating to domestic abuse. I'm completely against domestic abuse, and Anselm is too. Um, I constantly would encounter people who don't actually read Anselm, Augustine, Luther, these historic figures of the church, on their own terms, read them well, read them even-handed, before critiquing and engaging them. So I wanted to write and tell Anselm's uh, a Christology uh, in a way and in terms that my progressive friends who've never read him might decide he's not the worst thing that ever happened, and he has something good to say. And in his own context, that's rather uh, a weirdly progressive and inviting account. Um, so I was I was writing it as an Anselm evangelist, um, and I think it is pretty weird, like. It's so weird that it makes perfect sense in a weird way in his historical context. Mm-hmm. I think as a theologian, when I read and understand Anselm in his uh, context, especially in the feudal system, that this is one of the more uh, a, a, an alluring and beautiful account of of Christ. Um, I think that at the heart of Anselm's Christology is the recognition that God's sovereignty is accounted for primarily in God's decision to share the divine life with the finite world. And that the God-man is the logical uh, the logical conclusion to God's own decision to invest God's self fully in the finite world. Like, what it, the, the satisfaction hang-up is, the satisfaction theory is like the middle of a math equation. Um, that makes sense in a historical context that mm-hmm. gets to a rather robust and radically inclusive affirmation that the good, holy, and loving God refuses to be God without us. And mm-hmm. despite our failures, brokenness of the system and things, the God-man. Why the God-man? Because God is the good and loving one. Like, like, the, all, everything people get hung up on is related to a world they don't exist in and no one else does. I don't think it makes good sense to do with people anymore, um, but that's unrelated to how freaking awesome it is. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think teaching Anselm is one of the coolest ways to explain just how weird Christology is. And what it does is it looks – this is what it looks like to lovingly do theology in your context. If you want to know what the church is, it is these creative – intelligent theologians trying to give an account of the people he lived alongside who are illiterate, experiencing life more deeply because of God. Like, that's weird that that exists. And yet, like, 
he gives these beautiful accounts. The other thing people don't often get, I think, about Anselm is almost all of his work is written uh, because it was provoked by the people he educated and cared for. And it's written as prayers. Like, mm-hmm. like that's weird to write a philosophical account of the incarnation as a prayer book. That, um, And it's awesome. And I think it's doxological and uh, setting is one of the real important things to get uh, when reading uh, Anselm. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, anyway, you tell me what you think. Like I, like well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I mean, you want to situate him in that you know 11th century context, and I'm probably off by a century. Forgive me for that. I did not write my comps on Anselm, uh, but it's fascinating to me that you know there is a very well known modern appropriation of Anselm's theology, and it's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that Mm -hmm. really resonates with people in the 21st century. So, I mean, it strikes me that, you know, the alienness of Anselm, and you and I have talked about this, you know, our our approaches to the alien in theology differ a little bit, although each of us thinks the other's approach is cool. I think that the alienness of that is precisely what makes The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe work for late modern audiences. Yeah, I, 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 I think. Well, one, I think the uh, uh, the the people that like Lion Witch in the Wardrobe would do better to let Anselm and C.S. Lewis define satisfaction theory than their neo Calvinist friends. Amen. Um, so, like, preach it, trip. Preach it. <laughs> the, this is a cool part I think about the Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, I, I try to do it as well, but it, mine, I usually am encountering people that are doing more contemporary things. Yeah. But like, if you're going to, like, uh, so the church is this huge, huge art museum, and we have catacombs of amazing junk. Like, if you're going to go down and pull out a bunch of different satisfaction theory paintings and arrange a room, like, please don't, like, stab the hole in the coolest parts put on weird uh blinking lights and like i think most people that use it use it so poorly then it then it's just like it's weird for all the wrong reasons um and uh the other part is anselm was being very clear uh about the satisfaction theory being a critique of the previous atonement theories Mm -hmm. uh and a lot has to do with their ontological reality of like satan and demons and uh, God's relationship to some other metaphysical entities. Um, if you reinsert demons doing junk and Satan and powers into his theory, it gets really, really bad. Um, so I think that one of the things that uh, the the kind of just the thrust of a Christian humanist is, no, no, if you're going to do satisfaction theory, you got to do it good. And what did what did C.S. Lewis do? He understood it deeply and re-narrated it. And he told it in a narrative context where the person that heard it already got reintroduced into deep magic. Mm -hmm. Like, do realize it took a narrative of a book that you are reading with your kids and that kind of suspension of certain realities when you're reading things like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Narnia, like that kind of thing. He uses it beautifully creates a universe where you aren't questioning the deep magic and then does satisfaction theory. Anselm did not have to convince anyone about deep magic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So 
Uh, I think that close, deep account, um, uh, it, when we recapitulate those ideas today, is necessary. Otherwise, it's like uh, reading the second half of uh, the book and never, uh, never dwelling in Narnia long enough to realize how deep magic works. Mm-hmm. Well, listeners, I just want to pause here for a moment and note that uh, Trip Fuller and Nathan Gilmore both just said nice things about C.S. Lewis. Uh, mark this on your calendar. <laughs> well, I mean, the subtitle of my book is Making Fun of Him. Well, yeah, yeah, and I, I've been recorded a number of times talking about my own love-hate relationship with him, so... <laughs> oh, I think it's love-hate. Hey, you want you know something cool? Um, I, I think the conclusions of Half a Mere Christianity um, are really great for middle schoolers. <laughs> and uh, any middle schooler that read it, who then later shows up in your theology class, is one of your best students, and they don't agree with them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mere Christianity, I, that one's I, I have a conflicted relationship with it, because whenever our uh, philosophy club at Emmanuel College, which of course is called the uh, Emmanuel College Christian Humanists, whenever we meet, I can almost guarantee that someone's going to try on the slide to quote that book to me. So... Let's move on, though, because I wouldn't be able to call this podcast a good one, and I do strive to make it a good one, if I didn't give Trip Fuller a chance to talk about John Cobb for a little bit. So restrain yourself, uh, because I want to ask you a few more questions, but how do John Cobb's process metaphysics make for better theology than do the alternatives? Um, you know, I'll just say a little bit, because if you just type uh, John Cobb, Trip, advent in there's he and i have like an hour-long conversation about the incarnation in light of advent people can go listen to it um mm-hmm. uh well the chapter on um on logos christology and kind of just the vocabulary of christology and i kind of use him as an example to work it out uh really had to do with one of those moments i kind of had a theological awakening in undergrad um and the two parts of it, one was the problem of evil, and I don't really tell that half of it, I don't think, in the book. Uh, the other part was in this uh, history of Christology class, and I just – I, when I realized just what the early church meant by the hypostatic union, um, I thought, this is just weird. Uh, <laughs> I thought, I can't really – What you advocate re- for in this book, I want to note. <laughs> the, like, I know, but not weird enough. <laughs> It, it it wasn't weird in a alluring way. Okay, okay, carry on. Um, it was a, uh, I don't know how you want to say it. Um, oh, I don't know. I don't want to say the wrong thing. But, uh, so, John Cobb was someone who, to me, uh, made the language intentions of the early church's Christological commitments uh, make a lot more sense. That's really what it was. So the process metaphysics is, um, and it actually doesn't have to be just process. There's a lot of kind of evolutionary panentheistic accounts of God in the world. Any of them will function. I like Cobbs a lot because I'm in charge of his fan club. Um, <laughs> but the hypostatic union is a, like, it's a vocab word the church came up with to say something that in every other part of their philosophical system can't work, that two things are in the, the place of one. But like you get to the hypostatic union, and this is what Cobb emphasizes, uh, by defending the full humanity of Jesus. So some people come up and they're like, 
Oh, how are we going to have Jesus being human and divine? I know. Uh, cut out the human will, put in the divine. Oh, mm-hmm. that's popular. Mm-hmm. And the church has a council says, nope, can't do that. Well, take out the human soul, put in a divine one. Have a council? Nope, can't do that. Oh, what about the mind? Replace the mind? Nope. Uh, so the Christological controversies, to me, are the church insisting on the full humanity of Jesus despite our desire as Christians to be as docetic as we can get. We want Jesus just to be God and be super divine. We want a story that escapes reality rather than is invested in it. And the incarnation um, is about God's self-investment into the world. Like even the Gospel of John, the word became sarks. Mm. Not not like human. Right, not but, soma, not merely body. Yes, like it became the the uh, existence it became materiality mm-hmm. um the and you know and everyone that has read the Timaeus dialogue knows just how radical that statement is mm-hmm. um so so to me what what the early church is doing when it eventually goes the answer to the question of how god can be uh f- or jesus can be fully divine and fully human is the hypostatic union which has a inherently problematic definition is realizing that their philosophical system was not going to win a battle over our our theological commitment, namely that Jesus was the image of the invisible God and a homeless dead Jew. Like both of those things are fully true, and we're not going to give in to a substance-based metaphysics where one has to replace the other for one to be present. Now, what Cobb says is, all right, um, that is like wonderful commitment to this conclusion. Can we articulate it differently? And a open and relational metaphysics recognizes that uh, the incarnation doesn't have to come by divine invasion, which is important for answering certain theodicy questions, mm-hmm. but that the incarnation of God in Christ is the fruit of the vine of David. This is what uh, is in uh, the Didache, or the image of the invisible God. We see in some of the Christ hymns that... that uh, Jesus, in being fully human and fully responding faithfully to God in each moment, um, is uh, bringing into being in the events, in the relationship, uh, he's imaging uh, God fully through his full faithfulness. And not just that, but that the person Jesus, what's possible to him, what vision he has, is a product of God's self-investment with the history of Israel, right? The subversive paradigm of a covenant is Babel happens, and then God goes, well, relating to everyone at once is just not working out. How about this? <laughs> I'm going to bless you, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar. We're going to, look, I'm invested in y'all, and then y'all are going to bless the world, and then we're going to try to fix this thing. Um, and that whole story of Israel, of faithfulness, brokenness, Exile, return, uh, liberation from slavery, all that story becomes the uh, sacred canopy that gives the prophetic possibilities before Jesus. So without divine invasion, uh, God's ongoing self-investment in the people of Abraham uh, through the prophets uh, into exile, into return, into exile again, into Roman occupation, uh, especially with a mom like Mary who sings rather socialist hymns called the Magnificat. Um, right. Or, or Isaiah-flavored, whichever you prefer. 
Yeah, like the, <laughs> the, the to me, uh, Jesus Jesus can respond fully, faithfully to the sacred canopy that is the product of God's covenantal relationship and investment with Israel, and then as a human being receiving the gift of that tradition, being fully faithful to the one he called Abba, he has an experience, he experiences his own identity differently than you and I do, ontologically differently, where um, we experience God as present but other. And in the life of Jesus, we see someone whose own selfhood has fully identified uh, with God. That mm-hmm. the full faithfulness of Jesus doesn't come like the most ideal human responding, but this blossoming fruit of God's story with Israel, so that he takes on the vocation of Israel, and in through him, we have a cosmos that is being grafted in, the body of a cross-dead Jesus. Um, that is like Cobb's way of saying, yes, the early church was right to defend the humanity of Jesus over and over again. Now, what would it be like to make those affirmations in a relational way, where the incarnation doesn't happen by divine invasion, pull out part of a human being and insert God, but comes as the fruit of God's self-investment in the world, into the life of Israel, and into that story? Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty sweet. Um, there are other ways of you know doing it, but... Uh, oh, certainly, certainly. I mean, that's what I appreciate, Trip, about this book in particular and about homebrew Christianity more generally— uh, and why I always commend it to our listeners, even though I disagree with you on some fairly central points, is that you know the mode of theology that you take on is genuinely different from my mode. In that, you know, when I hear hypostatic union, I hear a placeholder for a contradiction. Uh, but my first response is not let's articulate a way that it doesn't contradict. But my response is okay. Then we've received a contradiction. What's next? Uh, you know, when I hear, you know, that, you know, the human being is a responsible moral agent whose actions have real influence on the future, and also I hear that God makes sovereign promises to restore creation to its life-giving and living fullness, that's a contradiction. I say, great, what's next? Uh, so, I mean, I, I like for our listeners to hear both of our approaches because I do share with you that central conviction that I don't want a whole bunch of Gilmore theologians running around. My hunch is you don't want a whole bunch of Fuller theologians running around. And I, I already have I, too many in my head. <laughs> and I just realized I made a pun on the Divinity School, but you, you know what I'm saying. I mean, you know, I would prefer people <laughs> hear you and hear me, and for that matter, you know, hear the cats over at, you know, uh, mere fidelity who are very much more conservative than I am so that they can do theology with us. I never want to do theology for someone else. I want you folks to come in and join the party because it's honestly a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, I, and I want, I, one of the things, and we talked about it in the, uh, maybe in the email thing, the, the framing device for the book has to do with, uh, a shift from kind of an external uh, debate about the reality of God or some doctrine between like the theist and the atheist or whatnot, mm-hmm. um, and recognizing that part of the postmodern condition, after realizing our kind of historical consciousness, cosmic one, social one, false consciousness reigning in things, that uh, there is no like generic 
place for rational, conclusive discourse that within each one of us, uh, there's the believer and the skeptic mm-hmm. um, uh, in part of any conversation. And I think the uh, for me, the recognizing the that actually makes robust affirmations more radical, attractive, enticing. Um, and the issue is not so much like where you get what your conclusions are. I think the postmodern thing to learn is how we hold our convictions. So you can mm-hmm. hold them, uh, you can hold them loosely and passionately. Um, and if you can't, you probably won't have a good sex life. <laughs> well, Trip, I, I I hate to have to follow that line, but I am. Uh, I want to address a big, big picture response to your project. Uh, and it's one that occurred to me throughout the book, and my hunch is it's one that will occur to Christian humanist listeners as well. So let me let me try to frame this objection, and then I want you to respond to it. Your critique of Anselm and Luther is that they make Christology a matter of saving sinful mortals from an angry God. The sense that I got reading through your Moltmann section, as well as other parts of your book, is that your defense of God is a Christology whose main business is saving a wretched God from an angry modern world. Have you simply reversed the places on the big male authoritarian judge in the sky? That's a phrase from the book. Have you simply replaced that with a big modern authoritarian jury here on earth? Or is something else going on when you advance that vision of Christology? Uh, So the question's so good that I want to make sure I say, like, I really wasn't trying to critique Anselm and Luther by saying, you know, sinful mortals have an angry God. Like, the the, the, uh, sentence that I'm trying to articulate with Anselm is that Mm -hmm is that God has refused to be God without us and intends to give us a share in the divine life. Mm-hmm. And with Luther, it's uh, the one true thing about you is that you are God's beloved, and faith is trusting God's word about you more than the lies you tell yourself, your parents, your boss, your culture, your world, the economy tell you, the market tells you. Um, okay. Th- those, like, I'm wanting to say that the, oh, they're just obsessed with sin and God's angry – is just reading Anselm and Luther in the worst way possible. Okay, fair and enough. Okay, so I, I, I grant Anselm that. And Luther. I, uh, I grant that. I misread you on that point. So, well, it, and part of it I think is I'm trying to rehabilitate them to people who think that intensely, mm-hmm. and I wanted to um, say, yeah, we can have that conversation later. Um, oh, Luther obviously got constipated and became anti-Semitic, but let's talk about this. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that's why, actually, the last part of the chapter, the Cootie story, um, is uh, what I'm wanting to do is to state positively what they're doing and then relativize it as some – in a way by saying – and here's another way of saying the same things Anselm and Luther are saying positively by telling a story about Cooties and playing Star Wars on the playground. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, because your question's really good. So, okay. Uh, so let, let me reframe the question part of the question then, and then I'll let you address it. All right. Um, your Moltmann-style defense of God seems to be a Christology whose main, main business is saving God from an angry modern world. Have you simply replaced the, quote, big male authoritarian judge in the sky, close quote, 
with a big modern authoritarian jury here on earth or is something else other than that simple switch going on with that theology? Um, I, I, I want you to assess my answer because this in I immediately respond this way and think after the 20th century, the 20th century puts the question of the existence of God as a uh, not one that we debate like atheist theist thing, but also one that's asked in a different way, in a different tone, in a different uh, with a different energy. Um, and I think it's because, and Eberhard Jungel points this out along with Moltmann, um, uh, that uh, what's the question of God's existence has also become a question of God's essence mm-hmm. um, in the 20th century. Meaning, does God exist? Uh, does is God good? Right, like in mm-hmm. around, becomes is God. Uh, because the existence and essence of God are no longer kind of distinct conversations after the Holocaust, after Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and um, after the lynching trees that uh, deacons made uh, across the South. Like the so yes, in a sense, theology has to do with us protesting um, the cross uh, the sheer cross dead massacre of the world like but I think that that question is one that coheres with the question at, at where apocalyptic Judaism emerges I mean it's different in the sense that like it's been centuries but I think apocalyptic Judaism and protest atheism um uh, and, and Moltmann said this in, in the recent podcast interview uh, that I did with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he said, like, no, no, like, there's a real sense that we, unless God has an answer to the, the question, these questions around the essence and existence of God, unless God is going to be revealed in history as the one Jesus called Abba, then we protest the reality of God on behalf of God. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want it to sound like, oh, we're putting God on trial. I think the demand, the insistence, the shaking our fist is us standing on behalf of God's goodness, kind of like Moses rest arguing with God, like, no, you have promised to be this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so I see some connections there uh, as, as to its origin, because I don't think God is in the business of justifying to us uh, God, I think God's in the business of demonstrating who God is in history, and that's uh, connected to uh, the apocalyptic reception of covenantal history. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask a follow-up then. I mean, you know, the, I mean, one book that I've heard you on the podcast say that you're, you just don't have much of an appetite for, but it's one that I teach every spring semester, Uh-oh. is the Book of Job. And it strikes me that in that book, I mean, you know, the epilogue to that book, which I always make my freshmen read out loud to me so they don't think that I made it up, is that Job's friend and fa- friends and family gathered together to help Job recover from what Yahweh had done to him. Where does that picture of the relationship between God and reality fit with this 
this vision that you've got where God is always on the side of those who are oppressed, it, it strikes me, and again, I mean, this is one of those places where it, it, it chases me back to the contradiction. I mean, it, it seems to me that Philippians 2 is certainly true, that God is, in fact, the one who is in the form of a slave, that, you know... Uh, you know, the epilogue to Mark, even if you read it your way and Pete Rollins' way as an existential atheism thing rather than as a dramatization of Psalm 22, as I tend to read it, but that's a different conversation. Even if you go that direction, it strikes me that that is true and also Job is true. And it strikes me that, you know, the job of Christian theology is to dwell in the presence of that contradiction rather than to keep it from contradicting. Am I a sociopath? <laughs> 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 um, well, you, you know, I, I think there's a couple different layers to that question. Okay. Um, I, we did, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, uh, a number of interviews where we interviewed Brueggemann and Fretheim right back to back. Yeah, I remember um, those. Mm -hmm. And and this is one of the arguments they had. And you're taking the Brueggemann position, I'm taking the Fretheim one. Right, and, um, I, and I do tend to take the Brueggemann position almost as a default. <laughs> Well, it, I mean, there are worse positions to take as a default. <laughs> although, uh, although you said in that now apocryphal recording that is lost somewhere in the digital ether, uh, and I think you're right that I take Brueggemann and then I go running naked down the street with it. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I metaphorically we don't need anyone. I mean, it is a podcast, so says you. you. Uh, I mean, if I told them what you're wearing right now, it would it would distract them, and I want them to go buy the book. Uh, so uh, we won't talk about it, but it's very beautiful, Nathan. Um, the, uh, so I guess a couple of the things are, one, what, how, how do we as the church relate to those texts? Um, and so in one sense, I want to do with all the wisdom literature around the problem of evil the same thing I would do with the diversity in the Gospels and say, like, canon includes the, the uh, protest and— what, however you want to do, Job, I think there's more than one answer in Job in a lot of readings, and that's why the book is so sweet, mm -hmm. like to read and wrestle with. Um, I also think that scriptures have uh, Ecclesiastes' answer to the problem of evil. I also think it has this rather naive relationship that's seen in like the Proverbs about doing good and being blessed. Sure. Um, I think that the story of Israel going into uh, slavery, going into exile, and out. Uh, frames the question of evil, sovereignty, injustice, and stuff. Um, so in one sense, I want to say, yes, yes, we have to, like, part of being Christian and part of being Jewish, right, for, in the wisdom literature is to keep arguing about these texts and mm -hmm. recognizing that all those answers are there. Um, uh, that's different than as a systematic theologian, which... Um, then how do we explain, account, understand those texts? Right. And, and, and that might be another core difference, Trip, is because I am also a Hauerwasian, which I know still makes you sad. Uh, I tend not to do systematic theology. Everyone has their growing edges, Nate. <laughs> uh, well, that sucker's been growing for 20 years, man. I, I'm glad you still have hope. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I, I am confident that uh, the, the lure of God is always present. Uh, but never coercive. Um, the, uh, so I think theologically we have to defend the diversity of answers in Scripture and as preachers, ministers, educators, invite 
the congregation to engage the diversity weirdness of the way the text frame it. Amen. Um, so, like, I think it would be fun to have four sermons in a row that are four different interpretations of Job and then not tell them which one's correct. And I assume <laughs> that in wrestling with the four interpretations of Job, you will have a more informed uh, uh, a the conversation around the problem of evil will become a more biblically shaped one, even if people's positions aren't significantly different. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, theologically, I think the question asked uh, around the problem of evil, um, and you can hear this is so. I'm just. I bet you're just and like hearing Pondenberg just jumping out of the <laughs> microphone, but like God's relationship to history. Um, the the question being asked and wrestled with there right there in scripture uh, is one that gives rise to eschatological Judaism. It's one that frames how we answer uh, and understand the story of Jesus, which we talked about when it goes to his relationship to the temple, sin, that kind of, kind of stuff. Um, it, in the book, I talk about it in relationship to how we understand the kingdom of God. Um, the, so to me, the question is framed in one way, and there's a diversity of answers in the Hebrew scriptures, and God's self-testimony in Christ shapes the way we understand uh, the answer and then reflect upon it again. I think some things are – some answers in the Hebrew Scripture are cut straight out as viable. I think Jesus mocks the rather straightforward, naive understanding in Proverbs. With that, I agree. Uh, uh, I think um, that uh, the Gospels are uncomfortable – with Jesus's own experience of certain parts of his ministry, be it the sheer hard-headedness and lack of response among his disciples and the initial people. I think in that way, he's real similar to uh, uh, parts of the story and life of Job, where he's like being faithful, he's doing what God wants, and then there's like a cluster curse of, <laughs> of horrible things going on around him. And he just keeps praying, getting worked up, going like, "What's going on, peeps?" Um, I think there is a resonance with Job uh, in the in the uh, uh, in the at the prayer of Gethsemane is where I would associate Job more than the cross, um, which is one of the ways Pete and I've argued about that before. Uh, which your interview with Pete's the best one on his new book, by the way. So, congratulations. oh, thank you, thank you. Um, he, it, I think the Job text is more centrally associated with. Uh, this recognition of Jesus differentiating um, the desire to escape, to change, and and going, not my will, but yours be done. Like sweating, facing death, betrayal, abandonment by his closest friends, uh, Peter, Judas, that whole thing. Uh, that's to me, is the closer thing uh, to Job, because the larger story of Job is about Job sitting and demanding and insisting an encounter with God. Right. Don't you dare tell me I had this coming. Yeah. Don't you dare tell me I had this coming. But, but the encounter or the uh, profundity of, of Job's non-answer he gets and Jesus says, you had, you get your answer in three days. Um, uh, (laughs) Like are more connected to their insistence on their faithfulness, despite what's going on around them. So I would, I, I think that connection is interesting, but the 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 main thing around the question I think is um, the that God's identity as Abba is um, 
the thing that's up for grabs in the cross and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and is God the one Jesus said God was? It's not a question so much about Jesus. Uh, and that emphasis, uh, when in the light of the resurrection, I think means we do close off certain answers. We reframe certain ones. Um, but we don't do it by closing the text off or, you know, forcing the text into something. I think we say, like most people in the New Testament, that we're part of a story. We're getting grafted in. It kind of makes sense. Um, but it's also radically new and different. Um, and when it goes to the question of the problem of evil, um, I don't think we get to answer it the same way after God got God's self crucified. Um, that is a game changer in the shaping of it to me. That's the, well, I guess would be like the Moltmannian turn around it. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. And, and the God's wanna... relationship to history thing is, uh, is, you know, Ponderberg's Jesus, God and man. Um, uh, Cobb does it in a different way and structures of Christian existence and, uh, uh, Christ in a pluralistic age. Um, anyway, and I just want to note real quick, uh, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you drop the G out of kingdom uh, and at risk of committing the gen- genetic fallacy here, it's interesting that the old English word kinning or chinning is simply the one who comes from the kin group. He's the one from the kin, the same way that an earthling is the one who is from the earth and atheling is someone who's from a noble line. So the kinning would simply be the person who comes from the kin group to negotiate with the kinning from the other kin group. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, in a strange way, you have done some etymological work here, Trip. Well, you know, that whole section got cut out. They said it was a little too nerdy. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, I'll remember that, so uh, I can add that in, in a footnote in the dissertation. Right on. Well, Trip, I want to ask you a big-picture question here as we head out the door. You seem to be writing this book largely for an audience who has rejected the iterations of Christianity that one most often finds in North America. Imagine with me for a moment here what a post-evangelical America looks like. What's for the better? What's for the worse? What does faith look like when your kids and mine are grandparents? Huh. Well, um, like, I don't know if I would have had any idea what my own faith would look like 10 years ago. Um, so, you know, uh, the, I, I'm, I'm not a futurist. You'd have to call in sweet for that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I would say that part of the, I wrote the book to be the, uh, intellectual and, uh, kind of an intellectually informed, uh, vibrant affirmation of Christ for people where Christendom is just not their world anymore. Um, What's interesting is the responses for people that live in parts of the country or world that Christendom isn't normative have read the book as a much more kind of uh, affirmation and a a new way of historic Christianity. Um, For those who Christendom shapes more of their context— I've read it as a much more aggressive, critical, prophetic, uh, edgy thing. Um, and so I, in in framing the book uh, with the call to be a uh, 
skeptical believer or believing skeptic, um, I wanted to uh, basically say, um, look, our epistemological situation, our relationship to culture and so many things uh, is actually giving us the ability to embrace Christianity in a completely new tone of vibrancy that actually has a whole lot more to do with uh, the the image of God in the scriptures, the uh, faith of those in uh, where where faith is emerging, where they aren't culture dominant. It has um, a uh, exciting thing to it. So I hope that you know when we're old and junk, and uh, that that we're uncomfortable with uh, like the loss of power of the church and energized by the vibrancy of a church who's uh who who's lost weight but stopped having laryngitis when it goes to speaking on behalf of the other uh embodying faith uh and even speaking beautiful confessions about christ um i i think the uh keeping it weird uh recognizing the the splitness of ourself as a person uh, gives us the ability to uh, uh, have a vibrant community, faith, and uh, self-understanding in a uh, growingly post-Christian um, uh, understanding in North America. the The thing I'm 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 interested in is what um, in what ways we uh, inform, invite people into the richness of the Christian tradition, uh, but one that relates to it in a playful, engaging, and loving way rather than as a burden or as things we're just grabbing as resources for our own means and that kind of thing. Like that's why your podcast, mine, like this kind of stuff is exciting because I think it gives people who want to join this huge rich, diverse conversation of people who can't describe themselves and God apart from Jesus, um, access uh, to the, the diversity of voices um, and places. Uh, and, and the other part, um, and this is, I mean, I talked quite a bit about it in the last two chapters of the book. Uh, I think the future of the church is bright because how, how many times in church history has the church had access to the voices of so many different Christians in different situations. Like, I think, um, like, the growth of different liberation theologies, uh, global theologies, uh, expressions of the faith in, uh, in all sorts of different settings, getting themselves heard in the church is an invitation um, uh, for the church to have a more vibrant unity Precisely because it has to recognize its diversity. It'll let people speak that have not been able to speak. They've kept their own voice in the closet in their congregation. It will uh, force us to realize that what we call historic Christianity is uh, Western, white, privileged, overeducated Christianity. And I think it's awesome. That's my favorite kind. Um, but uh, I think it does create a situation where we actually get to listen 
to the voices and testimonies of the people who have been systemically oppressed by the one the church has chaplained for so long. The situation, and this is the, this is like the coolest thing about Christology, I think. Like God reveals God's self in a very specific situation. And what is it that Luther's, one of my favorite Luther lines, he said that in manger, cross, and empty tomb, we see God's loving face. And when we, like, that line is to say that the situation for Revelation, if you want to know where Christ is, like, it is in the places who have no room. It is in the ones that are forsaken and suffer and, and, and are cast out. Like, and if we as the church want to be ones who can tell the story of resurrection, experience it and encounter it, then we will go to the very places that Christ has promised to be. Um, and that the situation of revelation, right? If Bart's Christocentrism, uh, when it is heard and received by the rest of the church, the, the, the situation of revelation becomes the oppressed. That's the insight of the liberation theology, uh, black theology, uh, and that kind of thing is that it's there that God reveals God's self. It's there that we're called to live and embody faith. It's one of the most conservative things in the world. Jesus said, I'll be in three places. Uh, when you gather in the name of the one who died cross dead, I will be there. I don't even care if you got great numbers. If you gather in my name and serve this meal of bread and cup and remind them of God's new covenant that is being brought into being through the broken uh, oppressed and murdered body of a homeless dead Jew, then I am there. And whenever you do for the least of these, I am there. So like at the table in community and for the other, Christ has promised to be there. And when the church is no longer needing to be the chaplain to empire, then we can actually build communities and become a people who encounters God precisely where Christ promised to be. That's exciting. I think it can it can cross all sorts of theological divides. I think you and I would be perfectly comfortable, and people to the left and right of us could actually exist in uh, community, in conversation, because what we gather to do is actually attend to the presence of Christ, which is in community, which is at the table, which is in the other. And that is a conservative position. It's like borrowing Jesus' words and saying it again. But it's also a very prophetic position— but it's a call to us as the church to to reinvent ourselves where Christ's presence is and not dominate a culture and insist that Christianity be uh, ubiquitous so that God's everywhere because God has to be everywhere. Um, that That's exciting to me. I hope that's what happens. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimistic-ish type of person. I'm eschatologically optimistic. Um, but – yeah, that was a long answer. I have no idea if it's what you were looking for. <laughs> That's all right. It's good. It's good. Well, Tripp, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation, asking the questions. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about Jesus, Christology, John Cobb, or whatever else as we close things out here? Huh. Oh, I'm, I just, I'll just say, like, if any, I just, you can get the book, you can go on Homebrewed Christianity and find out anything you want. I've probably talked about everything from four perspectives and thought each time I did it was right. So, um, you can go there. If you get the book, um, uh, then forward me the receipt to bonus at tripfuller.com and I will, uh, mail you a whole bunch of, of, uh, audio classes like Philip Clayton and I's Introduction to Religion and Science. The Christology class Peter, Peter Rollins and I did, 
our intro to radical theology class, which is fun because we argue about um, uh, the two interpretations of Bonhoeffer uh, quite a bit. And we introduce Heidegger, which is fun. Um, but uh, it, yeah, just uh, you know, go, go get the book. And I'm more interested in your response. And you know, I'll give you a bunch of uh, online classes and stuff so that if the book sucks, something in that you'll enjoy. Uh, but I guess like the main thing I would just say is I hope everyone that listens to this knows how much energy uh, is invested in people that make you the Christian Humanist Podcast across the network, the Christian Feminist Podcast, the Profiles, um, and, and, and the main show. Now you got a new science one. Um, like Podcasts are lots of work. I would say every hour of a podcast represents 15 hours of someone's work, either preparing, interviewing, editing, producing, and all that kind of stuff. So um, make sure you always tell everyone here at Christian Humanist Network, thank you. Um, and, 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 and a response of any sort is like makes you just feel super rewarded. So don't think someone that does podcasts doesn't care if it mattered or if you liked it, just go ahead and tell them. Tell them thank you and be supportive. Um, because like you like you heard recently, there's a brand new uh, Christian humanist uh, conference that um, is going to happen in the near future. I heard that Houston Baptist is going to be sponsoring it. Um, I was hoping to to compete with them and and see if we could have a a, a conference. I call it PodCon. Um, God PodCon, Pod GodCon, um, and and have a have a conference in Los Angeles on the beach with all the all the all the kind of religion philosophy podcasts, and <laughs> and then all the listeners get, all come. We do it super cheap, and then we all get to hang out, record podcasts, and we can bring in lots of guests and have fun. Uh, and I don't know what how much uh, help Houston is being for y'all. <laughs> but uh, I'm totally down to Voltron, a podcast-centric conference, and then you bring podcast theology nerds across the theological spectrum together um, and, uh, and see what happens. But um, I doubt Houston uh, Baptist will, would, uh, would have uh, homebrewed Christianity at it. Um, that's just been my experience of Baptist in Texas. Trip Fuller, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Oh, I've enjoyed it. Now you've got to give your shout out. I don't want you getting in trouble for not giving shout outs. You've already you, you got to tell Britt and, and Kristen what's up. Then shout out I shall. Thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode, for hanging in with us for a super nerdy conversation. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.